I got a mom who loves me. She gave me a cold bottle of water. Thank you, Mom. Well, it's a pleasure to be back with y'all. I always enjoy coming to Northwest. Um, it's just a privilege to be here with all of you. And as we work through uh, this message, I think it's going to come to light why, we, why I enjoy being here with you all. Uh, the, the song that we just sang, um, The Lord's Supper, that was beautiful, sir. Um, the Lord's Supper, remembering what Christ has done for us. The song we just sang about declaring the love of Christ to others is my message today. And it's always wonderful how God works that out. It's amazing how God gives you peace of what you're supposed to bring. Uh, me and uh, uh, Brother Darren were speaking before church and we were talking about you know, structuring sermons and different things and how it never feels like it's done. There's always more that we want to say and there's more we want to do and there's more we want to put in. And uh, the Lord has a way of, of, of bringing about a confirmation of what we're supposed to bring in a piece about that. And um, our text this morning is going to be 2 Corinthians chapter 5. So if you want to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, please do so. But before we get started, uh, I'd like to go to the Lord in a word of prayer, if that's okay. Father, we come to you right now in the name of your Son. Lord, we ask that you would just forgive us of any sins, Lord, that are between us and you right now. Lord, we confess it. Lord, forgive us of our failures. Father, we ask, Lord, now that you would speak to us and that it wouldn't be my opinion or what I think is right, Father, but what your word says. And Father, I pray that you would speak through me, pray that you would get me out of the way. And Lord, I just pray that you would bless the reading of your word and the preaching and teaching of your word, Lord, for one reason, that we may see Christ and that Christ may be glorified. And edified and honored. And it's in Christ's name. Amen. If I were to bring up John 3.16 to you, you would, most of you would probably be able to go ahead and recite that from memory. Most of you have known that verse since you were little kids in Sunday school, or maybe you've learned it your whole life. We see John 3.16 listed on billboards. We see it on signs. <clears throat> we see it on stickers on cars, t-shirts. We see it all over the place. You see it at college football games, NFL games, signs everywhere. You know the verse. My, my son knows the verse. He's memorized it. My daughter's getting there. And we think about that verse, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believeth in Him should not perish but have eternal life. We think of these things, but often we hear something so much that it becomes so familiar to us that it loses its sweetness. Familiarity in any way can birth two things. One of those things is us being complacent because we are so familiar. The other thing familiarity can breed is a fire and a passion. And so often in our Christian lives, me included, I don't know if I'm the only one in here, but we become so familiar with the Christian life and with the, the religious pieces of our life that it becomes mundane. It becomes, and then we become complacent. And to borrow uh, some verbiage from the military, complacency is deadly. Complacency kills. And it can kill our spiritual life. It can kill our home life. It can kill our families. And it can kill our churches. We often become familiar with things such as church attendance. We come to church. It's something that we do. It's something that we were raised to do. But I raise the question to you now. Why do you attend a local church? Why do you attend a local New Testament church? Corporate worship, the preaching, the singing, 
the Sunday school classes, everything we do corporately together as a local church. Why do we do these things? Why do we do them? We do them so often we become complacent. We become, it becomes routine that we lose focus of what we're here to do. We get complacent in our teaching. Whether you're a small Sunday school teacher with the little kids or, or you're, you're teaching the adult class, it can happen to a preacher. It can happen to somebody who's in the pulpit where we're doing it constantly and it becomes a routine. What about our individual Bible reading? Our individual prayer lives can become so mundane that it becomes a routine. What about listening to the preacher? What about listening to the teacher? What about hearing the message as it's given to you? We as people sitting and listening to sermons and listening to teachers and listening to Scripture have as much responsibility to that message as the one giving it. We have a complacency sometimes as Christians. I, I fall into it myself. And this has, been on this has been a burden on me for a long time. And I'm sorry, but you get to hear it today. In our text today, what we want to do is because we become complacent with so many things, and we can, we can go there. And often, sometimes, we get so complacent, so complacent that we even go to a place where we forget the love of Christ. We forget who Jesus Christ is. We forget what has been done for us. And I'm so thankful for a church, a local church like Northwest Baptist Church. You just observed the Lord's Supper. You just took the ordinance of the Lord's Supper, remembered what Christ did for you and what, what has been done through Him. We are often complacent with Christ's love, but this love that He has is a constraining love, and it's a compelling force which should ravish us daily, all the time. And that's what we're going to be speaking on this afternoon, is His constraining love for us, found in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross for you and me. And so I'm going to pick up in chapter 5, verse 14, and we're going to read down through, verses, through verse 21. For the love of Christ constraineth us, because we thus judge that if one died, then we're all dead. And that he died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. Amen. Wherefore, henceforth know we no man after the flesh. Yea, though we have known Christ after the flesh, yet now henceforth know we him no more. Therefore, if any man, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are are become new, and all things are of God, who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ, and hath given to us the ministry of reconciliation, to wit that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God did beseech you by us, we pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God, for he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Now, as you can see, as we're reading through this, you can see there's, there's, there's so much. There's so much richness in these verses and in this text. But the one, the one piece I want to bring us back to and really focus on this morning is the constraining love of Christ. Paul wrote 2 Corinthians to the church at Corinth. And in this section here, he's talking about that there were some men that came in the church. They were teaching falsely. Um, they were coming in. They were saying negative things about Paul. They were trying to get people to ignore Paul, uh, you know, saying he wasn't a good preacher and a speaker, and he wasn't very well at what he was doing. And in verse 11 back up a little bit, he kind of goes into this. And he says, Knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. But we are made manifest unto God, and I trust also are made manifest in your consciences. 
For we commend not ourselves again unto you, but give you occasion to glory on our behalf, that ye have somewhat to answer them, which glory in appearance and not in heart. So there was people that came into the church there, the local church at Corinth, and they, were, they had the appearance, right? They, they had the, the education, they had the speech, they had the talk, they had the knowledge, but they had nothing to boast of in their heart. They had nothing in their hearts. For whether we be beside ourselves, it is to God, or whether we be sober, it is for your cause. People thought Paul was crazy. Some of these individuals that were coming into the local church were saying Paul was crazy, that he was a madman. Uh, King Agrippa in Acts chapter 26 said, Paul, all this learning has made you mad. Your message that you're telling me is crazy. This is madness. Now, I want to get across to you, this isn't part of the message, but I want to relay to you again that the gospel will always be considered foolishness to the lost world. The gospel will always be considered foolishness. First uh, uh, Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 18 says, For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but to us which are saved it is the power of God. And so I want you to remember that as, you, as we work through this text today, remember that the gospel is always thought of to be foolishness by the lost world, by the world's systems, by the, by the evil world systems that we are involved in daily. Reject the gospel, hate the gospel, and they think it is foolishness. But God has chose the foolishness of preaching to save men. Amen. And that's a wonderful comfort to us. But as we get into this, Paul says it's the love of Christ that constraineth us. It constrains us, not the opinion of man, not what they say about us, not how they view us, but it's the love of Christ that constrains us. When we look at the life of Paul, and I promise I won't go that deep into Paul because I love studying Paul. I love looking into his life, and mainly because of this change in his life that was wrought by God in his life. Uh, going from a hater of God and a hater of the things of God, hating the Christ's message and hating uh, the followers of Christ who were known as followers of the way in the book of Acts, going from hating them to loving them to defending them to being their brother, from going from their enemy to their brother. It's just an amazing thing to see God work in the heart of a man. And it's a change that only God can wrought, that only God can bring into someone's life. We know through Paul's life that he was educated, that he was raised at the feet of Gamaliel. He, he, he had all the training that he needed to have. He, he knew the Old Testament. He knew the law. He knew everything that there was to know about the Jewish religion. In 2 Corinthians, I'm going to read this at the end. <clears throat> he goes on a little bit of a brief synopsis of everything that he's been through. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 24 says, Of the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes, except for one, so 39 stripes of the Jews. Three times, thrice I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. This is when he was stoned, left for dead outside the city, came back, was revived, went back into the city and preached the gospel of Jesus Christ. Three times he suffered shipwreck. Day and night he was in the deep. In journeyings often, in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils by mine own countrymen, in perils by the heathen, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils of sea, in perils among false brethren. Isn't it amazing that he puts false brethren at the same level of being stoned? Of robbers. Verse 27 In weariness and painfulness and watchings often and hunger and thirst and fastings often and cold and nakedness, besides those things that are without, that which cometh upon me daily, the care of all the churches. These are just a few of the things that Paul tells us and gives a list of as an example of what we can see in Scripture that he had to deal with. Of, of that he went through, but what kept him going? What was his focus? It was the constraining love of Jesus Christ, of his Lord Jesus Christ, not Paul's love for Christ. That's not what he's saying. Christ's love for him. Christ's love for us is what compels us. It constrains us. And this word constrain here, means to press in on both sides, to compel, to, comp to, to, to put under control. Almost as if there was a bondage over Paul to where he couldn't escape this love of Christ. 
this, this magnificent love that had, been, that had been shown to him. And <clears throat> when you look up that word in the Greek, some of the examples I saw of it was like a cattle shoot. Those of you maybe who've raised cattle in the past or been around cows, a cattle shoot is basically whether you're offloading in a trailer or you're bringing them in to, uh, to brand or to give them medication, you put them in a cattle chute. There's fences on both sides and they have only one way to go. They can't go to the left. They can't go to the right. They're not going to go back. They have to move forward and they're kept contained in an area. This is what this word means to be pressed in on both sides by this love of Jesus Christ. The first thing we must ask our question today, the question that must be laid before us as believers and the lost and the lost is one question specifically that we're going to start out with. The reality of the love of Christ is what we want to get to. But before we get to that, who is Christ? Who is Jesus? And in our Sunday school class, we've been in Mark. And last week, uh, we had a lesson in Mark chapter 8, where Jesus asked his disciples, who do men say that I am? Who, do, who is everyone else saying that I am? And Jesus says, and, and, and they answer him and said, oh, John, some say John the Baptist. Some say you are Elijah or an Old Testament prophet. Some say, uh, in, in Matthew's account, they bring up Jeremiah. And so they answer him. And Jesus says, that's great, wonderful. Who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? His inner circle, he's asking them, who do you say that I am? In Matthew chapter 16, what does Peter say? Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. We have to answer that question for ourselves, even as believers. Who do we say Christ is? You see, before we can understand the love of Christ and what has been done for us on the cross, we need to understand how sinful we were and how sinful we are. But before we can understand how sinful we are and what's been done, we need to understand who Christ is. We need to, and we'll never fully understand until we, we get to heaven. We'll never fully understand who Christ is, but we can spend our lives to getting to know Him. And we have preachers and teachers who want to tell you that information, who, who the burden of the preacher is to reveal Christ to the people. And so they know who He is. And they have more appreciation of what's been done for them in, in the gospel message, what's been done for them on the cross of Christ. Our view of Christ determines everything else we do in our Christian lives and in our private lives. It determines everything. It determines our view of corporate worship. It determines how we view coming to church, how we view church attendance, how we view church membership. Our view of who Jesus Christ is determines our level of devotion to Jesus Christ. And so right now what I want to do, and, and I'm going to fail at this, but we're going to do it together. Go to Colossians chapter 1 with me. Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. And we're going to go ahead and start in verse 12. And I would love to park here the entire service, but we can't. we got to get moving. But Colossians chapter 1, starting in verse 12. And it, breaks in, it goes from a prayer into basically a hymn, an old church hymn that, that, that was used, but it's divinely inspired. And it's in the Word of God, and it's God's Word, and we're going to read it, and we're going to break it down together. And this is describing Jesus Christ. Who is Jesus Christ? Please read along with me. Starting in verse 12, giving thanks unto the Father, which hath made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the, of the saints in light, who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son, Jesus Christ, in whom, again, this is Jesus, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. Ready? Put on your seatbelt. Verse 15, who is the image of the invisible God? In Him dwelt the fullness of the Godhead bodily. He was God in the flesh. He was fully God and fully man. The firstborn of every creature. Not that He was created first. Not that He was the first created being as some religions teach and some cults teach. No, He was first in rank. He was before all. He was priority. He was above all. First in authority. First in rank. And this answers the question, for by Him were all things created. 
He created all things. He was the agent of creation itself, was Jesus Christ. That are in heaven or that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by Him. Everything was created by Jesus Christ. Think about that. Everything. What you can see, what you can't see. Not only that, everything was created for Him. By Him and for Him. For His glory, for His honor, for His praise. Why did He create you? He created you for His glory. To glorify Him, to honor Him, to have communion with Him, to worship Him. We were created for Him. Ricky talks to me all the time and he asks me questions about Questions about, did God create this or that? And he brings up things like houses or cars or random objects like that. And I explained to him, yes, because all man has done is rearrange what God has made. God has provided us an intellect. God has provided us logic and reasoning and the ability to create using his resources. He has created all things and he has created all things for himself. Verse 17, and he is before all things, and by him all things consist. He holds together all things. All things consist in his hand, in his control, in his power. He, he holds your family. Your family consists in him. The local church consists in him. He consists of all things. He holds everything together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the control center of the local church. And this brings me to my uh, uh, kind of a sub point here that we have no right as Christians. We have no right as believers. And I see it across the U.S. We've been in many churches and I see it all the time. We have no right as believers to take God's instruction of how we are to operate his local church and make ourselves master of it. We have no right to take what He has ordained in Scripture for us to operate a local New Testament church and, and deviate from that and do what we want to do apart from His Word. Now, there's preferences. I'm not talking about preferences. I'm talking about if it goes against Scripture, if it goes against the, the guidelines outlined by the Word of God of how we are to operate. He is the head of the local church. He is the head. He is the control center. Who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead? He, he died and is risen and lives forevermore. He is firstborn from the dead. There has been Lazarus. You think of Lazarus. Think about that. Lazarus died. He got it over with. He got called back and then he had to do it all over again. <laughs> Jesus Christ is risen forevermore to live forevermore, seated at the right hand of God the Father, making intercession for us, our advocate, that in all things he might have the preeminence. In all things he might have the preeminence. Does that mean we make him first on a list of other things? No. This means he is first place. He is before all things. He is king of kings. He is Lord of lords. And we are to put him there in our lives because he is there, whether we want to recognize it or not. He is Lord. He is Savior. He is king over the local church, of our personal lives, of our individual lives, of our families, of our jobs, everywhere we are. He is first place. Christ is first. For it pleased the Father that all in him all the fullness should all the fullness dwell, and having made peace through his blood of his cross, by him to reconcile all things unto himself, by him I say whether they be things in earth or things in heaven. This is Christ Jesus. This is Jesus the Christ, the anointed one, the Son of God. Go with me real quickly. I can't, I can't go past this. Isaiah chapter 6. And I'm trying to give you little glimpses because we, we have to move on, but I'm trying to give you little glimpses of, 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 of text to try to open up your aperture, that, that God can use this text to open you up. And again, familiarity breeds complacency. A lot of these texts of Scripture we are familiar with. But when we read them together, <clears throat> 6 verse 1, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up, and His train filled the temple. 
And above it stood the seraphims, each one having six wings. With twain he covered his face, and with twain he covered his feet, and with twain he did fly. They couldn't, they had to cover their faces. They had to cover their feet because of the holiness and righteousness of God. And on one cried unto the other and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, and the whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door moved at the voice of him that cried, and the house was filled with smoke. This is Jesus Christ. Our King. This is the Christ who shed His blood for us, and it's the love of Christ for us, His love for sinners, His love for us that constrains us, that compels us because we recognize who Jesus is. This love that He has for us, it's everlasting. It's an everlasting love, and it's an unconditional love. We can't do anything to earn God's love. We can't do anything to earn God's favor. There's people that will teach you that if you don't do this or that, even after you're saved, if you don't do this or that, then God loves you a little less. Or maybe you don't have enough favor with God. Or you can earn more favor with God by doing these things. The only favor you have with God is through Jesus Christ. Because you are now clothed in His righteousness. He no longer looks at you and sees filthy rags. He no longer looks at you and sees the sin because your sin was imputed to Christ on the cross. When he was crushed, it pleased the Father to bruise him. It pleased the Father to crush him because all of our iniquities were laid on him. He sees Christ. When he looks at you, if you've trusted Christ as your Savior, if you've repented and come to faith in him, he looks at you. He no longer sees your sin. He sees Christ's righteousness. His love is unconditional. Often we sing that song, Oh, how I love Jesus. Oh, how I love Jesus. But 1 John 4.19 tells me a different story. We love Him because He first loved us. The only reason why we are able to even have any love towards Christ is because of the love that He showed on the cross. His love that He extended His, His free gift of salvation to us. It should not be, Oh, how I love Jesus. It should be, Oh, how Jesus loves me. A sinner's perfect plea. That is what it should be for us. And I want to call your attention this morning to this love because it's life-changing. Even as a believer, oftentimes we, get, we, we know the gospel, we hear the gospel, we trust Christ and we're saved. But again, sometimes we, we, we grow in, in numbness a little bit or maybe we look to different things. And the world has so many distractions It doesn't matter how long you've been. You turn on the news, distraction, distraction, distraction. Remember that Jesus Christ loves you. Remember when you get into the ministry or you're serving here in the local church or you're coming to church or you're reading your Bible and you grow tired and weary of serving. Remember His love for you. And study it. Look into it. Go further and deeper into the gospel itself. Part of what pains me is... I want so much for fellow believers to understand what Christ has done for them. Because the further you go into the gospel, the more you study the gospel message itself. It's just not five things. Do this, do this, and you say a prayer and you're done. That's not what I'm talking about. Study redemption. Study propitiation. Go in and see how our justification was achieved. Go in and look at the process of sanctification in our lives. Study what Christ has done. Study what God has done through Christ for us. It's beautiful and it's a wonderful thing that to change your life, you want passion, you want a spark in your Christian life, you want to serve God more, you want to be interested more, you want to move for God, you want to have a passion again. Get into the gospel, read the gospel, study the gospel message. We've only gotten into about five words of this, so we'll keep going. All right. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14. For the love of Christ constrains us or controls us. Why? Because we thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead. We, we, the love of Christ constrains us because we need to realize, obviously, we've talked about who Jesus is. We've talked about the, His love, that it's everlasting, it's unconditional. But look at this. We, we judge this because we are convinced Because if one died for all, then we're all dead. This is where we can begin to look at our state. 
We can begin to look at our state prior to Jesus Christ saving us, prior to our salvation. Go to Ephesians chapter 2 with me real quick. And I know y'all just got done having a, a series on Ephesians, but go to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. Verse 1, And you hath he quickened, who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein times past ye walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we had all of our conversation, or our manner of life in times past, and the lust of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others." You remember, most of you can look back in your lives and you can look back to before you were a Christian. You can look back and you can see your life prior to Jesus Christ. You can look back and see the way you used to live. I know for me, I can look back and see this as a mirror for me, walking according to the course of the world. Um, uh, uh, The manner of life that I had, my conversation was in the lusts of the flesh, fulfilling my own desires, my own wants. My own fleshly desires. I I, I remember that. I look back at the life before Jesus Christ saved me. And that's who I was. That is who I was. And others will tell you, don't look back. Don't look at your past. Don't look at your past. Forget your past. No, look at your past. Because it is a reminder of what Jesus Christ has done for you. Don't wallow in shame. Don't wallow in guilt. Don't wallow in pity. But appreciate what Jesus Christ has done for you. And how far He has brought you. His long-suffering. His mercy. His grace. And what He's done for you as His son and daughter. We must appreciate the fact of what has been done for us. And being able to appreciate this drives us forward. Drives us forward. Go with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. First Corinthians chapter 6. Verse 9, Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor the effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners, shall inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but ye are washed, but ye are sanctified, but ye are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. This is who we used to be. This is the way our lives were prior to coming to Jesus Christ. Which leads me to our next portion. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 15. And that He died for all, that they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves, but unto Him which died For them, the realization of what Christ has done for us should propel us to live the Christian life and to live for Him. His love must become a reality in our lives, and once it does, we then begin to see the results of Christ's love manifested in our lives. And if He died for all, then they which live should not henceforth live unto themselves but unto Him which died for them and rose again. No longer for ourselves are we to live. No longer are our wants, they're now His wants. Our plans are now His plans. Our goals are now His goals. Our likes are now His likes. Our dislikes should be His dislikes. Our life is His life. Our family now is His family. And our jobs, we are working those jobs for His honor and glory. And He has given us those jobs and He can take them away. We now live for Him. We now live for Christ. If we read further in Mark 8, Jesus says to His disciples, after He tells them what's going to happen to Him, that He's going to be rejected and that He's going to be killed and He's going to be risen again. And Peter has that little interaction with Him. And He says, Get thee behind me, Satan. He then goes on and said, If any man wants to follow me, if anyone wants to be my disciple, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. That means we must deny, when we come to Christ, we deny ourselves, right? We deny the fact that we're able to save ourselves. We have no hope in ourselves. Thank God, because if it was based on me or my efforts, I would be in hell. 
But let me tell you that it is we must deny ourselves when we come to Christ. But in order to follow Christ daily as a Christian, we must be willing to to go to the point of carrying our cross, which means we are to sacrifice ourselves even to the point of death if need be, for our Lord Jesus Christ. When we look at the apostles, we look at them and they're heroes to us. We look at their teaching. We look at what they've done. But look how they died. They died for their Lord. They died for Him. We must deny ourselves for Him now because of what He's done for us. Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20, again a familiar verse. Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20. Pages are stuck together. Galatians chapter 2 and verse 20. Most of you know this verse by heart, but I'm going to read it. Chapter 2 and verse 20. For I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. When, When we come to Christ, we die to self. We are crucified with Christ and, and we are quickened together. And in Ephesians chapter 2, and, and, and the continuation of the verse that we studied earlier, in Ephesians chapter 2, we talked about our state before Christ, before we came to Christ in faith. And then we see these words, but God. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4, but God, who is rich in mercy for his great love, wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. He has made us alive, spiritually alive with Christ. By grace are you saved, and hath raised us up together, and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ, that in the ages to come, he might show forth the exceeding riches of His grace and His kindness toward us through Jesus Christ. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. He has saved us. He has changed us in our our state, and this should give us an appreciation for what has been done in Christ for us. But this ability to live the Christian life, this ability to live for Him, comes from Him. Isn't that wonderful? He says, I'm going to save you, and I'm also going to give you the strength to live this life. You don't have to do this on your own. You don't have to rely on your flesh. And the ability to live from Him comes from Him. We cannot live the Christian life in our own strength, but through Him alone, because He because of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, gives us strength in our daily Christian lives. We seek His will to be done and not our own. We seek His will and not our own will. And we have to battle our flesh daily to fight against that because we don't live perfect Christian lives. I love how some people believe that Christians are perfect, but we're not. (laughs) We're not. We have a fallen flesh that we have to battle daily. We still have a sin nature that we must battle daily. Verse 16. Wherefore, henceforth, know we no man after the flesh, yet through, yet though we have known Christ after the flesh, yet now henceforth we know Him no more. So once we're saved, we're living for Christ. And part of, the, part of the results of that, part of the impact of that on our life is that we no longer see the world through our fleshly eyes. The impact of, that, of Christ saving us is that we no longer see other men through, the flesh, through fleshly eyes. We see them through the gospel lens. We, through, we see them through the lens of Scripture. We have a changed worldview. Paul here says he no longer looks at men the same way. He doesn't look at them through the flesh. He doesn't even see Christ the same. He says here that, <clears throat> Yea, though we have known Christ after the flesh, yet now henceforth know we Him no more. Since He was saved, prior to His salvation, He saw Christ as a blasphemer. He saw Christ as, a, as, as somebody that needed to be done away with. He saw Christ as somebody who was killed and didn't, didn't rise again. He saw the followers of Christ as insurrectionists, as people who, who were detrimental to the true belief in God. And so he did everything in his power to destroy Christ's church. He did everything in his power to destroy the followers of the way in the book of Acts. But he no longer sees Christ that way. Why? Because on one day on the road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9, he met the risen Christ. And his life changed. And he was a new creature in Christ, as we see here in verse 17. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away, and behold, all things 
are become new. The doctrine of regeneration, of, of when we are saved and we place our faith in Christ, our heart is changed. We are given a, a new heart. The heart of stone is pulled out of us and we're given a heart of flesh beating for Christ. We, we have a bent towards Christ now. We, don't, we, we see sin. We, we don't want sin. We, we have a new attitude towards sin and we have a new attitude towards the Lord. We want the things of the Lord. And we are changed. And because of it, our, our view of Christ changes. Our view of his, of his Scripture changes. Everything changes in us. And we don't have the time to go into this doctrine. But we are born again. This is the rebirth. The second birth. Jesus Christ told Nicodemus, you must be born again. In John chapter 1, it says that we are born of God. You cannot change yourself. You cannot change your heart. By grace through faith in Christ, we are changed. God, the Holy Spirit of God indwells us, changes our heart, and enables us to live the Christian life, empowers us to live the Christian life. Moving on now. Verse 18, and all things are of God. This work is of God. His change in our heart is of God. Who hath reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ Christ, and hath given us the ministry of reconciliation. Now we're getting into our responsibility in the light of the love of Christ. Our responsibility. What is our responsibility? Paul here said he was given the ministry of reconciliation. The, the, the ministry of this. And that word reconciliation or to be reconciled means to be brought back in favor with. To, to restore a relationship with. We have a message of reconciliation that we are to give to the lost. We have a message of reconciliation that we have been given and entrusted with and a ministry of this reconciliation. Don't think this is narrowed down just to Paul. This is also for us. We are to minister reconciliation to, yes, the lost, but we are also to minister reconciliation to the saved, to the Christians, reminding them of the hopes of the gospel, reminding them of the beauty of Christ. We are to minister to our families. We are to minister to our families and we have a responsibility in light of his constraining love to witness to our families. I have a responsibility as a father and as a dad and as a husband to witness to my wife, to witness to my daughter, to witness to my son. I have a responsibility in my home. I am not going to rely on a Sunday school teacher to teach my kids the Bible. I am not going to rely on them going to church and hearing from the preacher just to learn their Bible. I have a responsibility of a leader of the home to teach my kids the Bible and to teach them right from wrong, and to teach them, most importantly, the message of reconciliation, the gospel message of Jesus Christ. I have that responsibility, and everyone in this room as a believer has that responsibility. And this message, and we do that through the power of God, by the way. We do that through His help. We do that through prayer, through being on our knees, to seeking Him and praying. Prayer is, is... is a peace that seems to be left out so much in our lives. Our flesh hates prayer. It does. It, 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 our, our flesh, our, our sinful nature doesn't enjoy prayer. But it's crucial and it's critical. We must be in communion with our Father. We must intercede. Intercede for our family. Intercede for our fellow believers. Intercede for our local church. Intercede for our pastor. Intercede for the leaders who have been appointed over us. We must intercede. But other than that, we must commune. We must spend time with the Lord. We must spend time with Him, seeking His face. And we've been entrusted. Let's go to the next verse. Part of our responsibility is also verse 19. To wit that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. What is that word of reconciliation? It's the gospel message. That's what it is. And I'm skipping over a lot here because I'm trying to hit some some, some key things here. We have been entrusted. See that word entrusted. All believers in this room... Uh, as well as the preacher, the Sunday school teachers, whoever, have been entrusted with the message of reconciliation. We have been entrusted with the gospel message, the message that has been handed down to us through the scripture, through the apostles' teaching. We have a duty. We have a responsibility to protect that message of the gospel, to share that, that message of the gospel. And Paul warned numerous times, if anyone comes to you with a different gospel, whether it be me or an angel, let them be accursed. There is no other gospel. There is no other name given under heaven among men whereby we must be saved. It is Jesus Christ and Him alone. 
And he's not just a prophet. He's not just a, a good guy. He's not just a teacher. He is the sovereign Savior of the world. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. And, and we need to remember that because He loves us. We have Him. He's ours and we're His. And it's just amazing that I wish that all of you could just see this. And maybe you have and maybe I'm just now coming into it. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm catching up from the, from the back. I don't know. But the message of reconciliation, we are stewards of the gospel. And not moralistic preaching. Not moralistic preaching. And what I mean by that is I've seen so many Christians get so involved in, 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 in the fruits of, of the sin problem. We, we get so involved and we need to go picket this and we need to rally against this and we need to do this and do that. If we spent half the time that we spend doing those things and talking amongst each other about the results of sin instead of attacking the sin problem by proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ, which changes the heart and eventually will change the fruit. We spend, and I, I'm not saying we shouldn't. We should call out sin. That is our job. We are to call sin out. We are to say, we, we are to preach against sin. We are to proclaim against sin. We do not agree with it. We call it out. What I'm saying is, if we spend all of our effort as Christians going after the result of sin instead of the heart of man, it's a, it's a losing battle. It's a losing game. We need to be proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. Only the gospel of Jesus Christ can change the heart of a sinner. Only the gospel of Jesus. We weren't called to change cultures. We were called to preach the gospel. We were called to proclaim Christ. And Christ changes the hearts. We must focus on the root and not the fruit of the problems. I, 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 you know, we've been in, in churches all over the U.S. as traveling in military and different things. And you even see some of this inside churches where it's focused on a more moralistic teaching where if you do this, then this happens. If you do this, then that's going to happen. And there, there, we should be obedient. We should do these things. But when that is placed above the gospel of Jesus Christ and what He's done for us and why we should serve Him. I've, I've been in services where, you know, they... The three points of the message are tithing, soul winning, and being here on Wednesday night. Where that's, that's literally, and those things are important. I'm not saying they're not, so please forgive me. I'm not saying those things are not important. But when that is your sole focus, you're attacking the root. I mean, you're attacking the fruit and not the root of the problem. Show them Christ. Show your people Jesus Christ so they have a greater appreciation for who Jesus Christ is and they want to serve Him as Lord and serve Him as King. You want it. We won't have a problem coming to church. We won't have a problem assembling. We won't have a problem with that when we know who our God is. We must know God. We must know Him. There is one gospel. Jesus Christ's death, His burial, and resurrection. We know that. We know the gospel. Next verse. Verse 20. It's part of our responsibility. Now we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God did beseech you by us, we pray you in Christ's stead be ye reconciled to God. For He hath made Him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. We are ambassadors for Christ. If you think about that, the last time I was here, or a couple of times before that, we talked about the love of Christ. And we talk about the fact that we are adopted into the family of God of sons and daughters. And it would have been just enough if He just would have saved us and taken us to heaven. But He adopted us into His family. He adopted us into the family of God. Not only did He adopt us as all believers, but we are ambassadors for Him. We are ambassadors for our King, Jesus Christ. Uh, throughout history, ambassadors have been used. Y'all have probably seen on the news with the ambassador from the U.S. going to Israel, going to all these different countries. Historically, throughout history, kings have used ambassadors. It is, it is an entrusted position that they give for a representative to go into an alien nation as a representative for their kingship and their kingdom. They are entrusted to them and they have a word of the king that they are to give. They're not to put their opinions into it. They're not to put their emotions into it. They are to put their, the truth or whatever the king has given them to say. And the same likewise, 
We are ambassadors for our king in this alien nation, which is the world we live. In this world system, we, are not from, we, we do not agree with this world. This world does not agree with us. We will never be at home in this world. Paul says here at the beginning of 2 Corinthians chapter 5 that we groan in this body. We don't want to be here, but we are here. And whether we're at home or heaven, we live a life that's appeasing to Christ. We live a life that, that pleases Him, that, that is acceptable to Him because He died for us, because of what He's done for us, His love for us. We are ambassadors for Him. And we have a message of the king. And we are to go to this alien culture, this alien world, and give them the truth of the gospel message that Jesus Christ has died for them. And we see here uh, that Paul says, As though God did beseech you by us, we pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. That is our message. That is our message to the world. That is our message to the lost. Be reconciled to God. Be brought back in a right relationship with God. Be brought back in favor with God. Why? For He hath made Him to be sin for us. For God hath made Christ Jesus, to be sin for us who knew no sin. He was perfect. He was sinless. He was spotless. He was pure. He was tempted at all points, yet without sin. He was born of a virgin. The Father's bloodline didn't come through down to Christ. He, didn't, he wasn't born with a sin nature. He was perfect. He was clean. He was holy. The thrice holy God came into this earth, took on, took on flesh. He said it earlier. He grew up. He learned to walk on the ground that He made. He met, get that, the creator of the world came into his creation that rejected him, that spit in his face, that rebelled against him when he gave us everything. And he came into this world to live amongst us, to love us, to preach this message of reconciliation. Christ Jesus came into the world to live a perfect life and he would go to a cross. He would go to the cross for us, our substitute our, the atonement, our substitute. Here it says, For He made Him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. This divine exchange, the divine exchange of what Christ has done in the finished work, His finished work on the cross. When Christ Jesus was on the cross, all of our sins from past, present, and eternity, future, eternity, past, you, you sit here and I really want you to think about this because we probably haven't thought about it in a long time. I want you to take a second and examine your life. And I want you to think about the worst sin that you've ever committed. The one sin that no one knows about. The worst sin that you've ever committed in your life. Just think about it. Don't say it. But the worst sin that you've ever committed. And that sin and everything else that you've ever done was placed on Christ on the cross. It was lavished on Him on the cross. Isaiah chapter 53 we see the scene here that all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord laid on him, hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. All of our sins, everything we've ever done, all of our putrid, vile wretchedness uh, was placed on Jesus Christ on the cross. And it pleased the Father, what? To bruise him which also means to literally to crush him. And he, Jesus Christ was crushed under the full weight of the wrath of God. The physical suffering that you saw of Christ was only part of it. We're not going to take away from it, but you have to understand what we don't see. We have to understand what we do not see. We have to see what's not depicted in our precious little movies that we watch. The wrath of Almighty God against all of the sins of the entire world from eternity past to eternity future fell on the head of the risen Lord, Jesus Christ, the perfect, holy, pure Christ. It fell on Him. And for the first time in all of eternity, the Father could not look at the Son. He turned His back on the Son and Jesus said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But there was a second exchange that happened on the cross. And we see that here, <clears throat> that, our sins, that, <clears throat> that our sins were imputed to Him, but His righteousness was imputed to us as believers. We see that here, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. When He was on the cross, our sins were placed on Jesus Christ, and He suffered the wrath of God for us. But then His righteousness was put on us that we might be the righteousness of God in Him. He was treated like you should be treated. He was treated 
I'm not saying he was a sinner. He was sinless on that cross. But he was treated as if he committed every sin that you'd ever committed. He was treated that way and he suffered the penalty that you should have suffered for your sins. And we are treated according to his righteousness. Because of the divine exchange of what happened on that cross. Our sins were imputed to him and his righteousness, Jesus Christ's righteousness, was imputed to us. And that's what I was saying earlier, that when God the Father looks at us, He no longer sees our sin. He no longer sees our wretchedness and our vileness. Now He sees the beauty and the purity of Christ. And this is the message that we are ambassadors with. This is the message that we have to give. And three days later, after He died, He rose from the grave for our justification And that everything was complete. God's wrath was appeased. He was the propitiation for our sins and for the sins of the whole world. Everything was complete. The work of salvation was complete. And this message, this gospel message, is what Paul protected. He protected it. He was a guardian of the gospel. He defended and confirmed the gospel. He said, I am set or I'm appointed for the defense of the gospel. Necessity is laid upon me. Woe is unto me if I preach not the gospel. A dispensation of the gospel is entrusted unto me or committed to me. He referred to the gospel as my gospel, the gospel of God, the glorious gospel of the blessed God, the gospel of Christ, the gospel of the glory of Christ, the gospel of peace and the gospel of your salvation. He said, Romans 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. We have a loving God. And His love expressed and shown through Jesus Christ on the cross should constrain us in every way. It should control everything we do as Christians. It should control how we read our Bible. We shouldn't just read our Bible looking for stories. We should be reading our Bible looking for Him. We shouldn't just come to church to sit in a pew, myself included. shouldn't just come to church and sit in a pew to be there so no one says we're not there on Sunday. And, And I'm saying that because I felt that way and I've done that. We're coming to see Christ. We're coming to glorify Him. Why do we sing praises? Why do we worship? Corporate worship. Why do we sing corporately? Why, why do we have preaching and teaching? It's to edify Christ. It's to point to Jesus Christ. And this Christ that we preach is coming again. But this time when He comes, He's coming to judge. He's coming to judge. Revelations chapter 19. I'm, you don't have to turn there, but I'll read it for you. Revelations chapter 19 and verse 11. May I, may I add something? Jesus Christ is not a superhero. Jesus Christ is not a bobblehead figure. The other day we were driving by a church closer to our house, and uh, this, they had one of those fancy signs out there with the computer graphics. And it had, I, from far away I saw the, the name Jesus. And the center S was a Superman symbol. Jesus Christ is not Superman. Jesus Christ is not a Marvel character. He's not a DC character. There's certain things that we should say with trembling lips, and one of those is his name. Verse 11, And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he doth judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many many crowns. And he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood. And his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen and white and clean. And out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it he might smite down the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron. And he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness of, and the wrath of Almighty God. And he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. That's Jesus Christ, our King, who's coming again. He's coming again. And we have to proclaim this message to the world. We see what's going on in the world. We see the atrocities that are happening overseas. We see everything that's happening stateside. We, but we should expect it. 
We should expect it. We, we know that the world is, is, is sinful. We know that these things are going to occur. But it is our job to preach the gospel. It is our job to go out and, and bring in his harvest because we have been allowed. We get to do it. We get to be used as, as a tool for the Lord Jesus Christ to share his message of salvation. We get to do it. And I want to read to you um, some lyrics to a song. It's called, Here is Love, Vast as the Ocean. This was an old hymn. I think it was written during the 1800s, early 1800s. And I'm going to read it to you, and then I'm, I'm going to close with one following word real quick. Verse, it says, Here is love, vast as the ocean, loving kindness as the flood. When the prince of life, my ransom, shed for me his precious blood, who his love will not remember, who can cease to sing his praise, he shall never be forgotten, though heaven's everlasting days. On the mount of crucifixion, fountains opened deep and wide. Through the floodgates of God's mercy flowed the vast and gracious tide. Grace and love like mighty rivers poured incessant from above. And heaven's peace and perfect justice kissed a guilty world in love. Let me all thy love accepting, love thee ever all my days. Let me seek thy kingdom only, and my life be to thy praise. Thou alone shalt be my glory, nothing in the world I see. Thou hast cleansed and sanctified me, thou thyself hast set me free. In thy truth thou dost direct me. And thy spirit through thy word. And thy grace my need is meeting as I trust in thee, my Lord. All thy fullness thou art pouring and thy love and power in me without measure full and boundless as I yield myself to thee. We are ambassadors, we are ambassadors for our king. And we, we are members in, of a kingdom, his kingdom. And we have a message to proclaim and that is his kingship. He is King of kings and Lord of lords, and He's coming back. And He will rule this world with a rod of iron. People are in power right now because He allows them to be in power. People are in power right now because He, he, he allows it. He reigns over all. Don't forget that. Don't forget that the Lord Jesus reigns. But we have a message. And right now our message is this. Jesus Christ came into the world, lived a perfect life, a life that none of us could live. And He went to a cross, and He died for us, suffering our penalty on the cross. And he was dead, buried, and resurrected. And all we have to do is trust in him and his finished work. Realize our sin. Realize there's nothing we can do to get to heaven on our own. We are guilty before a holy and a righteous God. And we deserve a payment. We deserve hell. We deserve eternal separation from God. But God, but God sent Christ. And Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, died for us to take that punishment from us. Dead, burial, resurrection, and all we have to do is place our faith in Him and His finished work. Thank you.